Welcome to Understanding the Bible. This is episode 13, The Inerrant Holy Bible. So we'll get into some definitions. First of all, uh, the Holy Bible. What I am talking about when I refer to that is the 66 books of the Christian Bible. There's 39 books in the Old Testament, starting with Genesis, and 27 books in the New Testament, ending with Revelations. The Old Testament uh, canon is what they call it, is when they put it all together and said, okay, this is the scriptures of the Old Testament, was pretty much complete uh, or agreed upon by about 400 B.C. And how we know as modern day believers in Jesus Christ that this is actually supposed to be God's word, the Bible, is that it was affirmed by Jesus himself. So I'll get into some scriptures here in just a moment. But as far as the Old Testament goes, uh, the gospelcoalition.org actually says it well. They say that the first century historian Josephus offers a list of 22 Old Testament books accepted by the Jews, which appears to match our current 39 book collection. For Josephus, at least, and again, this is the first century historian in the Roman uh, government, the Old Testament canon seems quite settled. Quote, For although such long ages have now passed, no one has ventured neither to add or to remove or to alter a syllable. So the historians of the very first century recognized after 400 years had passed, the Old Testament was still accepted as complete. So much so that not even one syllable had changed. And then they continue here at the Gospel Coalition. It says, One of the other ways to ascertain the state of the Old Testament canon in the first century or the time of Christ is to consider the way New Testament writers utilize the Old Testament books. Even though the Old Testament is cited frequently by New Testament writers, there is never an indication of a dispute over what is considered the scriptures. While Jesus himself had many disagreements with the Jewish leadership of his day, there is no indication that there was any disagreement over which books were scripture. That reality is very hard to explain if the Old Testament canon was still in flux or changing or undecided. So in Jesus's day, Jesus quoted from the scriptures. He taught in the synagogues, in the Jewish synagogues. The people recognized that he was a great scholar of the Bible, right? That means that Judaism as a whole agreed with Jesus on what the scriptures were. So the Old Testament that we have, the 39 books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, which is the Pentateuch, the five books that Moses wrote, and then all the way through the Psalms and the prophets, um, all the way through Malachi, is the in totality the books that Jesus taught and quoted from and explained for the people in a manner that they couldn't under they couldn't believe was so wise that he was very clearly from God. So we have the Old Testament. That's kind of uh, something that Christians just assume to be the, the canon, that we just know because it's it's been that way for well over 2,000 years. So that's settled. The question comes uh, for a lot of people in the New Testament. Well, how do we know which books are from God? Because Jesus had died and rose again and gone to heaven when three quarters of the new Testament had not been written yet. So how do we know that those are from God? Right. First of all, it was finally established in Christianity and in the modern world in 170 AD 
about 80 years after John had finished writing the Revelations, the last book of the Bible, right? There was no doubt by AD 250, there was universal agreement as to what was scripture. The only issue that people had was the Apocrypha, which is the 14 books between the Old and the New Testament, with debate and discussion that still goes on today as to whether or not that's part of the Bible. But the vast majority of Hebrew scholars considered the Apocrypha even to be good historical and religious documents, just not scriptures. So here's some of the things that we know. Uh, the Council of Laodicea in AD 363 this is actually the church at Laodicea mentioned in chapter three of Revelations. They affirmed that the 27 books of the New Testament were from God. Then again, 30 years later, the Council of Hippo. And then uh, four years after that, in 397, the Council of Carthage reaffirmed these same 27 books are definitely from God. So one thing to understand about that is this was not that they went out and they found 27 books that they thought should be part of the Bible. Back in these times, in 170 AD, and 250 AD, and 363, and 397 AD, these people took the books that were already being taught and just affirmed that, yes, these books are the Holy Scriptures. So it was not so much books were chosen, but they affirmed that the church, the Christians, the believers, the followers of Jesus Christ were, yes, indeed, teaching the right things. So there's a big difference. Modern day liberals will tell you, well, mankind chose what books to put in the Bible, so it's not really from God, it's flawed. But that is not at all what happened. These books were not chosen. These books, from the moment they were written as letters, the epistles, from the moment the church, the believers of Jesus Christ, who they had just seen go back into heaven, from the moment they received these letters, they were teaching them as gospel from Jesus Christ. That's the point here, is that we did not choose what books to put in the Bible. We took what the believers taught, verified that it was from God, and kind of set it in stone that these together compiled the scriptures. And again, the dates were uh, AD 170. And then there was an actual council with the church of Laodicea, which is mentioned in Revelations. The council in 363 AD said, yes, these 27 books or letters are actually scripture. And then many times throughout history that was reaffirmed. The most recent one is the one that most theologians will use when they talk about uh, which translation of the scriptures is the most accurate according to the original letters. And that would be, you'll hear a lot of people talk about uh, the King James Version or the 1611 King James. And those took all of these 27 books of the New Testament and the 39 books of the Old Testament and reaffirmed again that, yes, these are the scriptures. And then did the original translation, translations from the Greek and the Aramaic and the Hebrew to confirm that what they'd been teaching for 1,600 years was actually the right words. So they were verifying to the individual word of each of these books. So again, uh, the 1611 uh, compiling of the King James Bible was not compiling the Bible. 
it was actually a, a retranslation to verify that what had been taught for so many hundreds of years was accurate. Now, going back to the Council of Laodicea in 363, the principles used by these different councils in Carthage and Hippo and the others were laid out actually by the church leaders of the day. And it was, there were four things that they looked at. First, the authors of each of these books or the, or the epistles, the letters, had to be either an apostle that Jesus Christ named or a close connection to Jesus or an apostle that could be verified. Then the second thing, the book must have been accepted worldwide by believers of Jesus Christ as already taught scriptures. Third, the book must contain a consistency of the doctrine of all the other books of the Bible and any teachings. And fourth, the book had to bear evidence of high moral and spiritual values that reflected the work of the Holy Spirit as the actual author, not just a man. So there was a lot that went into this to vet, if you will, to make sure that these were accurate. It wasn't choosing new books to go in the Bible. All right. So that's a big thing that people uh, confuse when it comes to what is the scriptures, right? And that's why it's so important to talk about this when we talk about the inerrant Holy Bible is, well, what's the Bible? Well, you need to know that it's the 66 books that since the very first century, that's what was taught. So another thing is that even in the book of Peter, uh, he affirmed the letters that were written by Paul were to be taught as scriptures, the same as the Old Testament. Second Peter 3.14 says, Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless, and account that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation— so reference to the cross, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, has written unto you, as also in all his epistles or letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood. So Paul is writing letters that are hard to understand, right? Which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. What he's saying here is that when people who are unlearned, people who are unstable in their ways, double-minded, potentially not Christians, when they argue Paul's letters, just like the Old Testament scriptures, they are doing it unto their own destruction. Peter affirmed even that Paul was writing scriptures. And then verse 17, it says, Ye therefore, beloved, seeing you know these things before, beware lest you also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. So he's telling fellow believers, listen, you cannot debate over whether the scriptures and the letters from Paul are actually divinely inspired scriptures that need to be followed, or you're going to fall away. All right, so that's the scriptures. We know that all of these books come from God, all right? Then we look at what does it mean to be inerrant? Well, the definition of inerrant is incapable of being wrong. That does not mean printing errors. I've seen some Bibles where the, the computer printed the word the twice in a row, like I just said. The, the, oh, the Bible has an error in it. No, it doesn't. The person that typed it or the computer programmed typed a word twice. That's not 
a fault of the scriptures. That's modern day technology that somebody screwed it up. It's just like if you take a Bible and you mark through some words and you change the words and put it in pencil or pen, and then you give the Bible to someone else and they see your pen mark and they're like, oh, aha, that's false. The Bible's not true. It has errors. No, come on. Let's not be stupid about it. So printing errors, modern day translation errors, that's not what it means without error. Inerrant means the words chosen by God are incapable of being wrong. So did God tell Moses to write down Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth in English? No, he didn't say that. He said it in Hebrew to Moses so that Moses understood it. And Moses wrote it in Hebrew. So we're talking about the original language here, not the translation that you choose to use. Translations can be wrong. The original language that is inerrant. It is incapable of being wrong. God breathed it. God said it. God preserved it. And that does not change that Bible. That word is incapable of being incorrect. So this means that any of the 66 books cannot contradict any of the others because it's, it's from God. So if it appears to be a contradiction, then you have to understand that you are not reading it correctly. Your context, your own perception of it is flawed. So for instance, people talk about Genesis 1, um, uh, the seven-day creation, and how with modern-day evolutionary theory that, that people believe that it took millions or billions of years for everything to, for mankind to evolve upon the earth, right? So then some Christians will say, well, you know, God says in the New Testament that one day is as a thousand years to the Lord. And so therefore, you know, it could easily be millions of years in between each day of creation. Okay. So they, they think that that is a contradiction. The old Testament says seven days and it didn't really mean seven days because the new Testament says a day is as a thousand years. All right. Let's look at those two verses really quick because there's, there is no contradiction and people think there is because they don't read the whole thing. Second Peter three, seven through 10 says, but the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So you look at that reserved unto fire for the day of judgment refers to revelations when God destroys the earth by fire. So we're talking about the end times. Verse eight, but beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing that one day is with the Lord is a thousand years. There's the verse people take out of context and a thousand years is one day. Verse nine. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. It means he's, he's not taking his time. He's not slow. As some men count slackness, but is long suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that it all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. So what that is saying is, you may think it's taking forever for God to come back, and for the judgment of the end times, it's been over 2000 years since Jesus left. And you think that's a long time because you only live 70 odd years, but God is not slow concerning his promise because a thousand years is nothing to God. In fact, God is being long suffering and allowing men the chance to change their mind and come to Christ because God doesn't want everyone 
to die in their sin. He wants to give people a chance and a second chance and a third and fourth chance, right? But the day of the Lord will come. That's what one day is a thousand years refers to. That God will keep his promise no matter what. And what you think is being slow is not actually being slow. It has no reference to one day equals a thousand years. That is not at all what it says. Then you look at Genesis 1 verse 4. It says, and God saw the light that it was good and God divided the light from the darkness and God called the light day and the darkness he called night and the evening and the morning were the first day and God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. So God made the sun and the moon and called it day and night, the evening and the morning, very clearly a reference to a 24 hour day. And God set them in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth and to rule over the day and over the night to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And then verse 19, and the evening and the morning were the fourth day. Genesis is clearly referring to six days of creation and the seventh day he rested. Physical 24 hour days. God defines it with the sun and the moon and the nighttime and the daytime and the evening and the morning. If you can hear God, who does not lie, tell you, I'm separating the nighttime from the daytime and I'm calling it evening and morning and you're going to see the moon at nighttime and you're going to see the sun during the daytime and that's the first day, you would be a complete and utter fool to think that he was referring to more than one 24-hour period. Sorry, you're not looking at the context. So very clearly... And that's just one example of what people assume is contradictions in the Bible. Well, the Bible says something, but it doesn't really mean it because later it says something else. No, no, no. There are no contradictions in the Bible. Either you haven't read it or you haven't looked at the context or you very clearly are taking it out of context. The Bible does not contradict itself. Why? Because the Bible is inerrant. It is from God. This means that if one verse says something, it is true. You don't have to find two or three or four verses or a verse in the Old Testament and a verse in the New Testament. If the Bible says one thing, if it is incapable of being wrong, then that makes that one thing true, period, end of discussion. So I like the way the Brean Study Bible says this in uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is God-breathed. And is useful for instruction, for conviction, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, fully equipped for every good work. If all scripture is breathed by God, and you decide that one verse isn't good enough for you, there's something wrong with you. If you decide that one of the God-breathed verses doesn't mean what it says, there's something wrong with you. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you must understand that because Jesus affirmed the Bible to be true. And I'll show you that here in a minute. So what that additionally means, it's not merely that every verse is true or that if you see something said one time in the Bible that it's automatically true. It also means that every single word in every single verse is true. Every word is intentionally God breathed and used on purpose in the original language. So I actually have a um, Bible program on my computer that has served me well for the last like 30 years. And it's called ESword, the electronic sword of the Lord. 
And it's, it's awesome because I can look up any Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic word and it will find the original language for me and help me understand that verse better. Number one, that's why I give scripture references and that's why I give definitions of words all the time in my podcast. Jesus himself said in Matthew 5, 17 and 18, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. A jot is like a dot over an eye. A tittle is like the end of the line that you cross for a T. Not even the whole line. It's just the little end of it. It's crazy. Jesus said one jot and one tittle is scripture. That's how precise God preserved the word of God. So we have uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls also that prove to us that we have what we have currently is the word of God. Those discoveries occurred in 1947 in Qumran, a village about 20 miles east of Jerusalem on the northwest shore of the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea Scrolls had Old Testament books from as early as 250 BC that precisely mirrored what we had in 1947 what we have today in the year 2023. We know that for 2000 years, the words that we have did not change. Those Dead Sea Scrolls were empirical evidence, proof beyond a shadow of a doubt that God has preserved his word to the T, to every single word, to the jot and tittle, that it hasn't changed. It doesn't have translation errors and copy errors that have riddled the whole passages like a normal book does when it's copied over and over again by hand. It also has the New Testament letters from about 70 AD from the different apostles. So the Dead Sea Scrolls were proof of the Old and the New Testament. Over 30,000 different manuscripts that prove the Bible we have today is the same Bible that Jesus had and that he told his disciples to write. So it confirms that God preserved the Bible word for word. The Dead Sea Scrolls were really a godsend to the modern day man. Now, I've mentioned this a few times, but let's get to the proof from Jesus Christ. Clearly, he affirmed the Old Testament. Luke 24, 44, and Jesus said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Jesus himself spoke about the Old Testament and it affirmed the entire Old Testament, the 39 books that the Jews used in his day. Then he ordained 12 to spread his words, his teachings to make the New Testament. Mark 3, 14, and he ordained 12 that they should be with him and that he might send them forth to preach. Then he said, there was going to be future teachings by these people. In John 16, 12, he said, I have yet many things to say unto you, but you can't bear them now. In chapter 14, verse 25, he said, These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. So they were going to receive teachings and have the things that Jesus said to them brought back to their mind. Why? So that they could preach it to others, so that they could teach it to others. Jesus fully expected us to listen to his apostles because they had the Holy Spirit. John 15, 26, But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, 
which proceeds from the Father. He shall testify of me, and you also shall bear witness, because you've been with me from the beginning. And he's talking to the twelve. Don't forget that Judas Iscariot went out and hanged himself, and he was that son of perdition that Jesus talked about, and there was only eleven left, right? So God ordained Saul, who became Paul, to preach the gospel. Remember, Saul was hunting Christians, and he went out on that road to Damascus, and uh, God struck him with a light and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he commissioned him to preach to the Gentiles. And he blinded his eyes and he said, Saul, you've got to go into this city and you've got to find this man named Ananias and he's going to restore your sight. And then you're going to be my servant. And Acts 9 verse 13, God came to Ananias and told him this. And Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he has done to the saints at Jerusalem. Remember, Saul hunted and killed Christians. Verse 14, And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on your name. So Saul was coming to imprison with soldiers and everything, people who follow Jesus Christ. Verse 15, But the Lord said unto him, Ananias, Go your way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered into the house and putting his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto you in the way as thou camest, has sent me that you might receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. Saul met Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus after Jesus was in heaven. Then Jesus came and told Ananias, I've appointed Saul to go to the Gentiles, listen to him, help him. So Saul essentially became like the 12th apostle to replace Judas Iscariot. Now, I'm, that's my own interpretation, but he was clearly commissioned by Jesus Christ to preach. And we need to learn from him. And so that's why the books of Paul, because Saul changed his name to Paul, that's why the books of Paul are in the, the New Testament. Then in John 17, Jesus Christ is praying to God the Father. John 17, 6, he said, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. He's referencing his 12 disciples. Thine they were, and thou gave them to me, and they have kept your word. For I have given unto them the words which you gave me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from you, and they have believed that thou didst send me. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. So he's saying, here's these Here's these 12, 11 at this point, because Judas is betraying him while he's saying this prayer. And he's saying, God, you gave me these people. They have received your words. They know that I'm God. And I want you and I'm asking you to make them one united in sharing the gospel message as we are, as Jesus Christ was with God the Father. He's saying that what they say is going to be gospel. And then uh, verse 12, he says, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those that thou gave me, I have kept and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Again, verifying that he's talking about the 11 or the 12 saved Judas Iscariot. And then verse 16, he says, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. So he's still talking to God, the father, sanctify them through thy truth, thy word 
is truth. The word of God is truth. As thou has sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. So he's commissioning the 11. He's saying when they speak God's word, that is truth. People need to listen, right? Neither pray I for these 11 alone, but for them also, which shall believe on me through their word. Jesus Christ prayed to God the Father for you and me listening to the words of the 12 apostles. Jesus Christ prayed for us in the Garden of Gethsemane before he died, that we who believe the words of the apostles, look at verse 21, that they all may be one, all of us, you and me and the 11 apostles and Paul, he says in verse 21, that they all may be one as thou father art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. And the glory which thou gave me, I gave to them, to the twelve, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Jesus Christ made it plain that the preaching, the words of the apostles were truth and were the words from God. So what does that mean to us as believers? Well, here's what it comes down to. When the Bible contradicts science, we have to choose to believe God because it's an inerrant word of God. It is incapable of being wrong. Science has been proven wrong multiple times. The whole flat earth theory, the idea that there's only 3,000 stars in the sky, evolution, so many times science has been proven wrong. And by the way, evolution has been proven wrong. I'd love to talk to you about that and carbon 14 dating and everything else. First Timothy six twenty says, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so-called. Interesting that for the last three years, we've been told to follow the science of masks and COVID and the vaccine and all that crap that has been proven to be false. We know it was lies because Fauci and everyone else was making money off of it, but it's been called science for three years. Profane and vain babblings, oppositions of science, falsely so-called. So the Bible actually believes science because science is God's laws on the universe that he created. So it says falsely so-called. So God, the apostles, the Holy Bible understands science and actually teaches a lot of science, which is pretty cool. But when science, quote unquote, contradicts the Bible, it's not actually science. You need to believe the Bible. So when we don't understand something in the Bible, we must choose to believe God anyways. John 20 verse 29 says, Jesus said unto him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. You've heard of doubting Thomases, right? When we don't understand something, we need to not be like Thomas. We need to believe the scriptures, the apostles. We need to believe their words because it is actually coming from God. When we disagree with the Bible, we need to admit we're wrong. When the Bible goes against our long-held traditions and beliefs, we need to admit that our beliefs and our traditions are wrong. You see, the Bible has all the answers for life. Why? Because it is God-breathed. 
2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is God breathed and is useful for instruction, for conviction, for correction and for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, fully equipped for every good work. The Bible has the answers for everything. Relationship problems, mental problems, finances. You wouldn't believe the amount of stuff that's in the Bible in regards to those things. How to handle problems with your husband or your wife. Man, I've used that stuff so many times. It's crazy. So instruction is what is right. Conviction is telling you when you're wrong. Correction is telling you how to fix yourself. And training in righteousness is how to keep yourself righteous, right? So you don't fall into sin again. So this verse is summed up as telling you the Bible can be used to tell you what is right, what is wrong, how to get right, and how to stay right. So the conclusion for all of this, the 66 books of the Old and New Testament are God's inerrant word, incapable of being wrong. Jesus himself affirmed the Old Testament and the New Testament and told us to listen to his disciples because they were commissioned by God and had the Holy Spirit. If we choose to believe Jesus Christ, we have to believe the whole Bible, whether we understand it or not. We cannot say that we follow Jesus Christ and at the same time refuse to believe his word because you're not really following him when he said, believe my word, believe my apostles, listen to the word of truth that they have to say. James 1, 5 through 8, last verse here. It says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. If you call yourself a Christian, if you say you believe in Jesus Christ and you're going to heaven because of Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross and the fact that he is God and rose again on the third day, if you say you believe that, don't be a liar. Don't be double-minded. You must believe the entire Bible. The 66 books of the Bible, down to the verses, down to the individual words, down to the dotted I and the crossed T, the jot and the tittle, they are the inerrant word of the living God. You do well to read it. And until next time, May God bless you all.